And please be seated. Isn't that incredible to think about singing Psalm 23? Psalm 23 is 3,000 years old. When we sing that, of course, we're singing a, a, a different translation of it, a, even a different language than many throughout the ages have sung. But when we sing that, we are adding our voices to generation upon generation of God's people who have sung his word together through Psalm 23. That just fascinates me. Uh, before I come to the preaching of God's word, I want to just say a word about the life of a multi-generational congregation. And if you look around, that's what we are. I don't know if you, you realize this. When First Scots was first started, the core group of about 28 folks, there was only one family under age 60, uh, which means there was only one child uh, in the congregation. By God's grace, we've grown to be a, a multi-generational church, and that's what we've desired and prayed for, uh, not to be a church for old people or a church for young people, but to be a church for God's people no matter the age. And children in the life of the church are visible evidence of Christ's promise that he will build his church. We have some tremendously godly young families in this congregation who are working very hard to train their children to be worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think these families recognize that one of the trends that exists among many today is that when a, a person hits 17, 18, 19 years old, church ceases to be a part of their life. And I think a lot of these young families realize that part of the reason for that is that for so many years, young people were taught that the church is for old people. You go to nursery, and then you go to children's church, and then, you know, it's just a small window of time where we actually tell children, this matters to you. And so the families in this church, when you hear baby sounds in the life of the congregation, they're acting upon that right instinct that, that children need to be taught to worship. And so we have these godly families that are doing that and uh, do so with the support of this church. I'm one of those families, having raised two children who are born in this church, and I can tell you that the families of this church need your prayers and your support and patience as we train up the next generation of worshipers. But there's a mutual sense of need as well. They, baby sounds are joyful sounds, and I've never once found it a distraction. But this is a very live room, sound-wise, and that's by design. We, we wanted to have as few soft surfaces as possible so that the congregational singing would be amplified. More soft surfaces deaden sound. That's not what you want in singing. Uh, this means that the cries of little ones, as it gets louder and louder, can sometimes make it hard for some folks to hear, and especially those who have hearing aids, those loud screeches can hurt. So as we live as a multi-generational church, keep this in mind. Romans 12.10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let me ask those of you who are not raising young children at the time, will you continue to pray for the young families and be gracious to them as they are training these little ones to be worshipers who will hopefully be worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ long after you and I have joined that choir triumphant in heaven? 
and to families who are raising little ones, if you would continue to, to, be, uh, to seek the well-being of your neighbor. And at times that may mean having to take a little one to the worshipers in training room uh, so that they can still hear but also stretch their legs and stretch their lungs at times. Um, in both cases, as some are dealing patiently with baby sounds, others are seeking to minimize the sounds from their children. In both cases, it's an act of worship as we seek to love God and love neighbor. Well, with all that said, would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews? We're going to look at chapter 13. That's found on page 1010 of your Bibles. That is the 47th time by my count that I've asked you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews in this study, and it is the last time in this study that I'm going to ask you to do that. We're going to move on. Lord willing, when I uh, return, I'll, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks from the pulpit. Pastor Walton will be preaching. When I return, I'll be preaching from the book of Jude. So this is the last sermon in our study of Hebrews. My hope is that this study has been a great benefit to you and the test of whether or not you have paid attention and whether or not God has blessed Hebrews to your hearing is, is Jesus Christ greater in your eyes today than he was, let's say, a year ago? Is he more wonderful in your eyes than he was a year ago? Because that's really the goal of Hebrews, is to say, to convey in a million different ways, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what? Jesus is better than anything and everything. And so the way you know if you've really paid attention to Hebrews is look over the last year and say, do I love Jesus? Am I more in awe of Jesus today than I was a year ago? That's what Hebrews is all about. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last few verses. These closing verses are packed with hope and comfort for believers as the author of this letter seeks to leave his recipients with this powerful benediction, entrusting them to the grace of Jesus Christ. I titled this sermon, The Benediction of Christ, because this is a blessing, a benediction that belongs to Jesus, but was given to us through his work upon the cross. Now, before I read God's word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before your word as needy, hungry people. And we pray that you would bless the ministry of your word to our hearts, that you would grow us in grace, in maturity, and more than anything, that we would be in awe of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Listen now to the reading of God's word, Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 20. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Do you know the story of Ira Yates? In the 1920s and 30s, in the era of the Great Depression, Ira Yates was a sheep rancher in Texas. He was an experienced rancher. He had abundant property, but the Depression years were hard and had little money for food, for clothing. And his family, like so many others in those days, had to live on government subsidy. Day after day, Yates would tend to his sheep as they grazed over the rolling hills of West Texas, and he would rack his brain trying to figure out some way to pay the bills. One day, a crew of prospectors came from an oil company and convinced Yates that there may be oil on his land. They asked permission to drill a test well. He agreed, and they signed a lease contract. And at 1,115 feet, the drill struck a huge reserve of oil. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day, and that was only the beginning. Many more wells came in. Even in recent years, Yates Field remains one of the top 10 oil producers in the United States. And to think, at one point, Yates was a man living in poverty, but sitting on millions and didn't know it. What was his problem? He had no idea the inexhaustible supply of riches that were right under his feet. It's the story of Ira Yates, and it's the story of us, isn't it? As believers, we have a truly inexhaustible supply of riches at our access, but so often we go through life as though we're impoverished, just hoping to get by. That's what this benediction at the end of Hebrews aims to remind us of, if we will pay attention. And the reason I say if is so often we view the benediction, whether it's the benediction at the end of a book or the benediction at the end of the worship service, we view it like the, the closing credits of a movie that scroll by that nobody ever watches. But the benediction is so much more. The benediction is like the prospector that came to Ira Yates to say there is an inexhaustible supply of wealth that is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what the benediction tells us. And not only that, because Jesus Christ loves us so well, all of it is ours. He loves to lavish his blessing, his benediction upon his people. He does so freely in other words, we don't have to earn it from him. And yet, it was so costly to him. He purchased the benediction for us, we who could not afford it and did not deserve it, and he did so by taking our curse, our malediction, and giving us the blessing, the benediction that he deserved. This poignant blessing comes at the end of the book. You hear it each week in various forms at the end of the service as the Lord's way of saying to you, reminding you, dear ones, don't forget that you belong to Jesus Christ. And as you depart from this place, you do so every moment of your life under the extraordinarily wonderful blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. As we look at this text, I want you to see two things. First, I want you to see that this benediction tells us what Christ purchased for our sakes. And then second, 
we're going to look at what it means that we are equipped to do His will. So first, this benediction tells us so much about what Christ purchased for you at the cost of His own blood. Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. He keeps going, of course, but we're going to stop there right now. You and I could easily stretch this out for another year, just studying that amazing verse and what it tells us about who God is. They're they're wonderful, deep theological truths. The author, though, he's not just flexing theological muscles, although you can imagine he was sort of a theological Arnold Schwarzenegger or as we call those, Steve Waltons. He's showing the wonder of all that Jesus has purchased for us by his blood. He's showing them the receipts. Here's what is yours in Christ Jesus. And we can boil it down to four things that he's purchased for us. Peace, power, promise, and presence. Let's look at those. First is peace. He calls God, in verse 20, the God of peace. Now, this is not a title that he came up with here. This is a title that's actually used frequently in the New Testament. It's used five other times. Now, coincidentally, they're all used by the Apostle Paul in all the other places. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. A friend of mine asked, he said, with this being the last sermon, are you finally going to tell everybody who wrote Hebrews? Well, despite the fact that we see Pauline language used here and other places, my answer is still the same. I just don't know who wrote Hebrews. But I do know this. The God of peace that he's talking about here, peace with God only exists because of Jesus Christ. You sometimes see that bumper sticker that says, no Jesus, K-N-O-W Jesus, no peace. K-N-O-W peace. And then no Jesus, N-O Jesus, no peace. In our natural state, men are not at peace with God. In fact, we are at war with God. The Bible tells us that man's natural disposition towards God, apart from the saving work of Christ, is enmity, is to be hostile towards God. We don't realize that because we downplay how damaging sin is. Do you know what sin really is? Sin is really an effort to usurp the authority of God and dethrone him. That's what sin is. It's saying to God, I know that you are the sovereign lawgiver and you have given me every law that I need to know, but I am not going to follow your law. I am going to take the place of the lawgiver. And so sin is an act of cosmic treason against God. That's why every sin deserves hell. In political terms, sin is a coup to unseat the reigning king. We, we see one of those back in the Old Testament with Absalom, the son of David. And Absalom is vying for David's throne, and it creates great hostility in the kingdom. And peace couldn't be restored to David's kingdom until the wicked son Absalom was dead. In the gospel, the story is the same and it's different. We have created hostility. But God sent his own perfect son, the son whom he loved, to restore us to peace with him. Look with me at Colossians 1. Colossians 1.21 
And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that being Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, the peace here that that Scripture speaks of is not peace that we have created. It is peace that God has created through his Son. This is why we call the cross, the death of Christ, we call it atoning death. Atonement was an old English word that meant at one, to be at peace with someone. So when Christ died an atoning death, it was to make us at one with God, at peace with God. Now, do you get that? We don't work really, really hard at the Christian life hoping we can finally have peace with God. You cannot do enough in a million lifetimes to create peace with God yourself. But if you are a Christian, you are already at peace with God because Jesus took your sins. There is no longer hostility from God towards you. Do you get that? This is so hard for us to remember, isn't it, Christians? It is so hard to remember God's not mad at us. His wrath has been poured out, not on you, but upon Jesus. And so for those for whom Jesus Christ died that atoning death, what's left if he drank all of God's wrath upon the cross, that cup that he talked about? What is left for you? Only peace. God is not just playing nice and one day he's going to get even with you for what you've done. He really, really loves you through the peace that Jesus Christ made upon the cross as he bore our sins. But let me warn you, there is such a thing as false peace. And there are many who are deceived by false peace. False peace doesn't come from knowledge of God's grace, but from ignorance of God's wrath. There are many churches, even churches in our own community, that are going to speak of things like peace and love for God, but they will not speak of things like the cross or the wrath of God. Friends, hear me on this. Without the cross... Any thoughts of peace with God are utter lies. And ignorance will not excuse anyone on the last day. Peace with God comes only through the cross of Christ. So he starts by talking about peace that Christ has accomplished for us. And then he moves on and he talks about God's power that's at work within us. The God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. You know, this is the only direct allusion to the resurrection of Christ in all 13 chapters of Hebrews, and it's an emphasis on the awesome power of the resurrection. And the author wants us to understand something very important. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within us. It's at work within these Hebrew believers. Uh, The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is living and active in us today. Look with me at Romans 8 for a moment.
Romans 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now, he's not saying possibly the Spirit of Jesus is going to dwell in you. He's saying if you're a believer, the Spirit does dwell in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. He's, he's saying that power that raised Jesus from the dead is also at work within you, taking you from death to life, renewing you in sanctification, preserving you to glory. You see, God doesn't say to us, okay, you're saved, now the rest is up to you. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He's the one whose power is at work within you. And that's so important. Those of you who've been here through this whole study of Hebrews, you know how important that is because perhaps just a matter of months or years before this letter was sent, the church was bigger than it was when the letter was received. But persecution has been coming. There was more to lose, and there are many who have abandoned the faith. They have turned away. They didn't finish the race. They they were like the believers in 2 Timothy 3 that Paul talks about, who had the form of godliness but denied its power. In other words, the power of the Spirit, the power of the resurrection wasn't at work within them because if he was at work within them, they would have finished the race that they had begun. I want you to think about this for a moment. Do Do you get what Holy Spirit power is? Because there's, there's a, a whole train of Christendom that says Holy Spirit power means you'll speak gibberish, speaking in tongues. It means that you'll run through the aisles in worship. It means you'll be slain in the Spirit. Uh, that's what it means. That's not what it means for the power of the Spirit to be at work within you. Holy Spirit power means that the Holy Spirit has brought you from death to life, has made you from the image of the world to the image of Christ, and is preserving you till glory. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit power at work within us. Well, then third, he talks about the promise. That's what it means when he talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The the word covenant, I, I talked about it all Sunday school class, but I can't overstate how important that word is. In its in its most basic sense, it really means promise. But it's the Bible's way of speaking of God's unique relationship with his people. Now, you and I, we we can talk about different types of relationships in different ways. So you have many friendships, but you only have one person that you look to as your husband or your wife, and so we call that marriage. Um, Parents and children, they have a term for that. It's family. When God speaks of his relationship to his people, he speaks in terms of covenant. And so when Hebrews 13 is talking about the blood of the eternal covenant, it is actually talking about something that transcends time and space that actually happened before the foundation of the world. When the Father chose a people for himself, the Son determined to purchase a people by his own blood, and the Spirit covenanted to apply redemption to us through the new birth. God, in his covenant, has promised upon his own character to redeem us for himself, not according to our worth, but according to his great love for us. Covenants in the ancient world, they had blessings or benedictions for obedience. 
curses or maledictions for disobedience. In the blood of the covenant that Hebrews 13 is talking about here, Christ took the curse, the malediction that we deserve. He received it fully on the cross, and in exchange, he gives us the extraordinary benediction that he deserves. That's the promise here. All of this was determined before the foundation of the world. God didn't look down the corridors of time, see who was going to choose him, and then choose them. He chose them. He chose you solely according to his grace. There's a hymn in our hymnal, number 471. It goes like this. "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me." Do you know why it is such good news that we are chosen solely by God's sovereign grace and not because of anything in us? Because if it were anything in us that earned God's favor, we could just as easily lose it. Or a different way of saying it is when the Father and Son and Spirit covenanted to my redemption before the foundation of the world, they took into account every stupid thing I would do in my life. My foolishness does not derail God's sovereign plan. That's wonderful news. It's not up to my performance, but to his promise. And then we see a fourth extraordinary benefit that Christ purchased for us, and that is his presence with us. Hebrews calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. The language there in Greek is wonderful. It's, it's the mega shepherd. It's the mega shepherd of the sheep. Now, what do shepherds do? You don't have shepherds who govern from a boardroom far away. Shepherds are present with the sheep. They know the sheep. They protect the sheep. They feed the sheep. They lead the sheep. And it's a full-time job to be with the sheep. Do you know why? Because sheep are sheepish. Sheep are foolish animals. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever spent time around a sheep? Have you ever just watched sheep? They are self-destructive animals. You know, a different way of asking is, do you believe in the theory of evolution? I don't believe in the theory of of evolution that one species can transform into another species. I, I don't believe it because the Bible doesn't teach it. I don't believe it because science hasn't proven it. But another reason I don't believe it is because sheep have survived all these years as dumb as they are. You know, evolution teaches the survival of the fittest. Well, sheep are the most unfit unwise animals in the world. The only reason they survive at all is because of shepherds. And so when the Bible calls us sheep, it's not a compliment. But our great encouragement is that Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. He had a shepherd's heart filled with compassion for foolish, wandering sheep, even when the sheep act sheepishly. In fact, so much so was his heart for us that he became like us. John the Baptist could look at him and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was described as being like a sheep led to slaughter. Jesus is both the perfect lamb and the great shepherd. Now it's interesting he's called the great shepherd. Everywhere else refers to him. Even he referred to himself in John as the good shepherd, but Hebrews calls him the great shepherd. Why? Because of the resurrection. 
as the risen shepherd, he is with us. He is present with us eternally. He is present with us today. If he was not resurrected, he could not be present with his sheep. So the resurrected Jesus Christ is present with his sheep. He is protecting his sheep so much so that he cannot possibly lose any of his sheep because he purchased us with his own eternal blood. Now, what what security and what comfort and what gravity that brings to our souls to know that Jesus Christ is our constant shepherd who will never leave us or forsake us. Pastor Walton shared this quote with me this week, and I want to use it before he can, and because it's really good. He said this, If the infinite power in the universe is our loving shepherd, then we can live fearlessly. That was the psalmist confidence in Psalm 23. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I fear no evil, for you're with me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Isn't this incredible what all Jesus has purchased for us? All of these things, the peace, the power, the promise, the presence, they are all ours. And do you see why I say that so many of us live like Ira Yates? We're standing on immense, inexhaustible supply of blessing. And we have no idea. We have to learn to see the unseen. Yates' blessings were underground. Our blessing is seated in heaven. Well, all of that sounds incredibly good, doesn't it? But I have to imagine these Hebrew believers who have given up everything to follow Christ, who are being persecuted, now they're in a marginal sect of outcasts. I can imagine some of them will say, yeah, that's really nice that we have this benediction, but how does this matter today when my life is absolutely falling apart, when I've got people who want to arrest me or kill me because I'm a Christian? I know it's a good word, but life doesn't feel really good right now. You can imagine some of them thinking that. How do you know God loves you? Do you know it simply when things are going well? Because you're prospering? There's an entire theological bent in Christendom that teaches that if God loves you, you will have prosperity. The early church had no such concept. To be a Christian meant to suffer for the sake of Jesus. How do you know God loves you? It rests not on the gifts that he's given, but because he once gave his own son for you. And if that is true, and it is, then you can rest in and trust him with both your eternity then and life today. That's the second wonderful truth we see here. We see what Christ has purchased for us, but the second thing I want you to see is God is working in us, equipping us to do his will. Look at verse 21. The prayer continues that God would equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. In all of the affairs of your life, God is working in you, Christian. God is at work. There is nothing in our world that happens 
by blind look or blind luck or sheer coincidence. It is all the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. You know what that includes? That includes the hard things and the sad things and the things that seem irredeemable. But he is always working, Hebrews is saying, in the lives of those whom he loves so much. That means, beloved, your affliction, your difficulty, your diagnosis, your depression, whatever it is that doesn't feel good, God is at work. He never wastes a trial. They are all custom-fitted for us. It is all for a purpose, even though you can't see his purpose right now. So whether it's persecution or a cancer diagnosis or a broken relationship or a lost job or a wayward child, God is working in you for your good, even when it doesn't feel good. You can trust him. Sinclair Ferguson, in his wonderful podcast, Things Unseen, I commend it all the time, This past Thursday, he was speaking of how Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, calls members of the church, believers, living stones. And of course, when a building is being built with stones, sometimes the stones have to be refined. And so a master stonemason has to chisel those stones. Sometimes he has to break them to break off their uneven sides and their rough edges. And Ferguson says, as living stones, we often find ourselves in the midst of hard circumstances. But we must remember that the Lord, the master stonemason, is chiseling us. He is making something out of us. He is working in us to make us fit better to his plan. And so we can trust him. And he says, don't you think if the stones could speak when they're being chiseled, they'd say, ouch, that hurts. So it shouldn't surprise us if our own lives are punctuated by a series of, ouch, Lord, that hurts, when he works in our lives. But what makes the difference for believers is we can trust the one who is chiseling us, that he is working all things for good. The text even tells us the purpose towards which God is working all those things. That is, to make us like God. Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of us, we hear something like that and we say, okay, great, but I just got to make it from day to day. I just got to figure out how to make it through the day. We're, we're like Ira Yates, just trying to figure out how to make it. That's why so many churches just focus on, on, on very temporal stuff, like 10 steps to a happy marriage or, or biblical principles for gaining wealth. We have to realize you and I were created for so much more. You and I were created to display to the whole world the wonder of Jesus Christ. Let me zoom out for a minute. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the pinnacle of creation, he formed two people, man and woman. They were different from all the other creatures because he made them his image bearers. He made them like himself. They were to be a reflection to the ends of the earth of who he is. 
But with that increased privilege of being like God came increased responsibility. They were the only creatures on the whole earth, in the whole created order, that could choose to either do good or to sin. And sin they did. And when they sinned, God's pristine world became polluted and his glory became obscured. That was the world into which Jesus came. And there was nothing Jesus loved more than to do his Father's will. He he said it this way, It is my food to do my Father's will. And his Father's will was to accomplish our salvation. And for all who believe in Jesus Christ, all who are redeemed, purchased by his blood, what he is doing is creating for himself a new race of believers who reflect the glory of himself to the ends of the earth. Through the gospel, God is reclaiming, redeeming, and renewing little image bearers of Jesus Christ and spreading us to the ends of the earth. Go, therefore, into all nations that we might reflect the glory of who Jesus is. See, that's why you and I were created. We get so hung up on really small stuff, but the big deal, the big thing for which we were created is to show to the world the excellencies of Jesus Christ. There is no more dignified, no greater job description on earth than to be an image bearer of Jesus Christ. And Jesus doesn't just say to us, hey, look at what I did. I did my Father's will. Now, you go do what I did. By his Spirit, he unites you to himself that we are both commanded and, as the text says, equipped to do his will. In other words, we are talking about obedience in the Christian life. And sometimes people can get really nervous about obedience because they think, well, if we're saved by grace through faith, then obedience must be legalism. Obedience is not necessarily legalism. Obedience to earn your salvation is legalism. Obedience because of grace is simply an expression of love to God for what he's done for you. See, as Christians, we are very good at speaking of the grace of justification, where God saved us from sin's penalty. So think of, look with me at Ephesians 2, and I want you to keep your finger there. Uh, don't, don't close it after we've read this verse, but Ephesians 2, this is the quintessential salvation by grace through faith passage. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Keep your finger there. Paul's saying, by grace, Christ has taken sin's penalty from you. But if we stop there, we only get half the power of the gospel. He loves us just as we are, but he loves us so much he doesn't leave us just as we are. Not only does he break sin's it takes sin's penalty, but he breaks sin's power in our lives so that as believers we can actually live to the glory of God. So look at verse 10. 
follows right after verse 9, doesn't it? But we always stop at verse 9. Look at verse 10. For you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. When it talks about created in Christ Jesus, it's not talking about when you were born from your mother's womb. It's talking about when you were born by the Spirit into Jesus Christ. And you are being renewed to be a reflection of Jesus to the ends of the earth as you live in obedience to him. This is one of the true marks of being a Christian, that he is working in you not only to learn God's word and what God's word commands, but to actually love God's word and what God's word commands of you. And then at, at the end of verse 21, we get the payoff to the glory of and praise of his name. As Jesus works in us, we begin more and more to live the way he calls us to live, and he gets all the praise and all the glory. We can't take credit because he's the one at work within us. St. Augustine had this great line in his confession where he says, Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest of it's my fault. That's exactly what this passage is saying. Whenever we see progress in the Christian life, we should praise God for it. It's God's doing. We don't get to say that we did that, that we produced holiness. We're not like Nebuchadnezzar who surveyed his kingdom. Is this not the great Babylon that I built? No, anything good in us, it is his doing. He is working in us, that which is pleasing. Look at your life. Let me ask you, are you more patient than you used to be? Praise God. Do you love neighbor more than you used to? Praise God. Husbands, do you love your wives as Christ loved the church more than you used to? You should praise God for that. Wives, do you submit to your husbands better than you used to? Praise God for that. Those are all signs that he is working in you and through you. If there's fruit in our lives, we don't puff out our chest and become conceited. We praise God that he could work through someone as weak and foolish and sheepish as me. That's why the author desperately wants his flock to know, you know, whatever comes into your life, whatever God brings into your life, you can trust him because he loves you. And he loves you as you are, but he loves you so much he's not going to leave you as you are. And so as you consider the circumstances of your life, which are sometimes hard and sometimes sad and sometimes bad, and you would never choose for yourself, and you might want to say, God, what are you doing? Hebrews 13 tells us exactly what he's doing. He is working all the circumstances of your life to make you like Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want? You know, if you've really seen the gospel, as it's been laid out for us in Hebrews. Is there anything better than to be like Jesus? That's what Hebrews has been all about. Exhorting believers to see the goodness of Christ and then saying to them, don't let go of him. He's the only thing worth holding on to. He's the only one worth living for. So hold fast to the faith, and those two things fit together so well. If we have seen his goodness and his grace and his glory, how could we not want to follow him? There's a story of a young slave girl who was taken to market to be sold, and she noticed a man who kept his eye on her, and when bidding began, he was determined to get her. She looked at the man bidding on her, and her heart leapt with fear. 
What does he want from me? Why, why is he set upon me like this? He's probably like all the rest. But he won the bid, and as he was walking away with her, he said, young lady, you are free. What does that mean? It means you're free. Oh, does it mean that I can say what I want to say? Yes. Does it mean I can go where I want to go? Yes. Does it mean I can do what I want to do? Yes, my dear. And with tears streaming down her face, she says, then I want to go with you. Do you see that with Jesus Christ? That if he did all of this for us, if he gave us that incredible benediction by taking to himself that malediction, that curse that we deserve, then shouldn't you and I give our lives to him? Aren't our lives best spent in service to him? We need to heed the words of Hebrews that as we find more and more of the superiority and supremacy of Jesus Christ, that we would follow him more and more with all that we have. How do we apply this text? It's one application. It comes from verse 22. Look at that. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. In other words, live by the word. Friends, if you desire to be like Jesus Christ, you must be serious about the Word of God. There's an interesting relationship between holiness, which only God can produce, and our duty to grow in holiness, which we are commanded to do so often throughout the Scriptures. And the relationship is this. Only God can grant us holiness, and the means through which He does it is through His Word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Beloved, we cannot produce in ourselves holiness. Only God can do that. And the way he does it is through the reading and the preaching of his word. So if you desire to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to the world, showing the excellencies of him who saved you, then be a people who are diligent about the scriptures. Study them for yourselves. Pay attention to them. Pray diligently through them. Come to morning worship. Come to evening worship. As you do so by faith, the Holy Spirit uses those means to equip you and enable you to be more like Jesus Christ. And if you long for Jesus to be glorified more and more in you, then let the Word of God be the dominant shaping influence in your life. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for this text and this whole book that we've had a year to study, and I pray that we are a people who love Jesus Christ more now than we did a year ago, and I pray that a year from now we would love him more than we do today. Father, we ask that you would equip us through all the workings of our life, through all our circumstances, all of it, to reflect Jesus, to do your will, to glorify your name. Help us to that end, we pray.